to another episode of the Beer Edge Podcast. I'm your host, Andy Crouch. Many parts of the country are now completing their second full month of sheltering at home during the pandemic, and people are starting to get restless. Small but vocal protests have erupted outside state capitals and governor's mansions in a handful of states. And while these unmasked protesters may be relatively few in numbers compared to the hundreds of millions of people who are following local and state orders to stay at home, their cries reflect a deeper dissatisfaction with life under COVID. There is a growing restlessness that comes with the dawning realization that while the shelter-in-place requirements may take a few months, that the overall impact of the pandemic on our lives will be substantially more troubling than we first expected. Job losses, once thought to be temporary, are starting to become permanent. The wave of restaurant, bar, brewery, and business closures that were suggested would happen are now coming to pass. And a lost summer, if not all of 2020, is starting to seem more likely. Add to this improving weather around the country, with people looking to get out of doors, and the spirit of we are all in this together is starting to come untethered. Businesses are often told to stay out of politics to avoid turning off potential customers. And many folks follow that model, while some others believe a different path is the truer one. This week, Beer Edge editor John Hall talks with Deb Carey of the Nuclearis Brewing Company in Wisconsin about politics, protest, and how her successful brewery is dealing with the pandemic. Here is his report. Just after 5 p.m. on April 24th, Deborah Carey took to her personal Facebook account and typed out the following message. Quote, Brewery loved ones are working in respiratory departments of Wisconsin hospitals. They are given one mask to last the week. There are no precious few COVID tests, so don't pay attention to the reports of deaths. Respiratory illness is not being tested until they are in an ICU. I just committed to $15,000 for 50,000 masks. Please pray for our working loved ones as well as those who are ill. You think you got a naughty spouse? This one just spent $15,000 on N95 masks. I hope they get here. Don't tell Dan. Do tell the hired protesters and anarchists to shut the fuck up and to go home. I have guns too. End quote. This status update was well in line with how the co-founder, along with her husband Dan Carey of Nuclearis Brewing, talks about politics, especially relating to the presidential battleground state of Wisconsin, where the brewery is located. Her post came just after armed protesters took to the state capitol to show their displeasure with social distancing and other health-related restrictions imposed because of the COVID-19 pandemic. Within hours, angry conservative commentators had shared screenshots and for some reason changed the font of the post and urged people to boycott the brewery, or in an attempt to turn the tables, they suggested that maybe she was trying to incite violence. Brewery loyalists, including fans of Spotted Cow, Raspberry Tart, and more, were all too quick to defend the brewery and carry on Twitter, where the online assault was raging, but Deb herself does not maintain an account. There's been a long belief that businesses should stay out of politics and that brewery owners should keep any partisan thoughts to themselves for fear of offending customers of different political persuasions. This view only became more acute during the run-up to and result of the presidential election of 2016. But in the way that many non-business-owning Americans have taken to social media to share their opinions, so too of brewery owners. Some use their personal accounts like Carrie, while others employ branded pages to get their messages out. The idea that owners cannot have and share opinions is an outdated one, Carrie tells me. 
She says that when it comes to being both a person passionate about helping people and politics and a business owner, she cannot separate the two. So while this particular post appeared political to some, enraging some readers and firing up others, Carrie says that the fact that the brewery, which makes more than 200,000 barrels of beer each year, only distributes in Wisconsin, means that she can know bar owners and wholesalers personally, which keeps relationships and therefore business strong. So the out-of-state people who are angry have little impact on the overall business. Ultimately, she's happy that the post is getting so much attention. As this is an election year, Carrie points out that the reaction to her post was textbook gaslighting in her view, and it is valuable that she and others be able to spot when that's happening. Such awareness allows her and others to respond appropriately so that the real message behind her posts are not lost to the noise. Carrie is adamant that she will not change how she posts or what she posts going forward. And she points out that consumers of craft like big, bold flavors, and there are personalities that go along with it. Breweries that have been careful with words or gone bland are ones that have seen some struggles, in her view. Trying to be everything to everyone is not a strategy that works in beer or life these days, according to Carrie. She's not running for office, and she's not writing position papers. She's just sharing opinions and facts based on experiences and realities. Putting herself out there and receiving some criticism in response is just part of the process. I spoke with her last week, and we recorded while she spoke to me from a conference room at the brewery, and I wanted to find out how she was doing after this post happened and what she planned on doing going forward. Here's the conversation. So I guess the, 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 the first question is, how is New Glarus Brewing doing since the pandemic started and since life as we know it changed dramatically? Well, you know, overall, I am really, really pleased to say that everybody here is healthy. And so, you know, for that reason alone, we're doing great. As soon as this stuff had started to occur, um, you know, like way before our governor said anything, we split everybody into three teams so that instead of working, we don't work a 24-hour shift, but pretty close, Um we split it into like daytime hours so that people are here from more like seven until five and that of the three teams, everybody's paid, you know, all of their pay and all of their health insurance. That doesn't change. Wow. That's great. But that only one team at a time would be in the brewery so that, you know, basically they work a week or off two weeks, work a week, off two weeks. And then that way um, we can maintain the social distance. And then we, of course, tried to order the heavy-duty masks, which are non-existent. And um, but you know we have other masks and bandanas, and uh, brought in a couple different machines to take people's temperatures, and then they sign in and take their own temperature. And there's sanitizer like every three feet, and you know we're doing things <laughs> like in the lunchroom since there's fewer people, like one person at a table. The people are really conscientious about sanitation in the brewery anyway. So this I, I was like I was going to say, idea. you guys run yeah. probably the cleanest brewery that I've ever been to. I remember yeah. before I, I visited I the first agree. time, somebody said to me, uh, you could drop a fried egg on the floor, uh, pick it up and eat it with no problem. And this was before I visited. And then when I finally got there and was walking around with you, I, I 
absolutely agreed with that. So yeah, sanitation yeah. I don't think was a problem beforehand, but no, that you guys have even ramped it up as something else. Yeah, we're we've always been uh, just crazy about cleaning. I mean, it's a food product, and prevention is our best form of insurance to make sure that we're providing. I mean, our goal is to make world class beer. We make a lot of crazy beer styles. One of the real problematic issues for production has always been historically for us to have so many different yeast strains going at the same time. And, you know, we've got the wild yeast stuff. And so there's no way that you can have like real wheat beer and real ale yeast and real lager yeast all floating around together and then throw in a couple other things um, and not have, have them all commingle unless you keep things really sanitary. Mm -hmm. So you're right. We had that down. We amped it up. We broke down teams. We right away uh, eliminated kegging was the first thing because we're like, oh, this is not going to be good. Things are not going well. Well, well that's one so of the we things. Shut down. Yeah. Go so ahead. you shut that down. Because yeah. when I think of Wisconsin and, and still, I mean, you guys are famous for just distributing in your, in your state. But mm-hmm. how much of your production is draft? like uh, pretty close to half, probably about 40%. Wow. So it's significant, and it, it was painful, And we, but we right away, and the wholesalers at that time, everybody's kind of doing the same thing of like, what, what, what's going on? And so we just said, we're not shipping, like, we're not going to ship you any beer, and we'll see what happens, and, you know, just stop shipping to accounts, uh, draft beer, because... You know, draft beer doesn't have as great a shelf life as other things. Sure. Harder to control and all of that. And then, of course, the shutdown did happen. So then the next thing I did, which um, I'm really surprised not everybody's doing this, but this is back when I thought, well, maybe we'll, you know, maybe we'll be closed for a couple of weeks. But as we all know, you know, all the draft lines in the state, which are important to me, um, there they are tapped with half full kegs and like who knows what's going on. But certainly the beer is not going to be great. So right away, uh, we communicated with all of our accounts and the wholesalers that we wanted them, uh, that we would replace all of their um, tapped beer with fresh beer as soon as we open back up. As, as we open, yeah. Helps them, yeah, that helps them too because they – you know, is a huge financial outlay. Some of these places have 20 draft lines. Well, at let's just go with 100 bucks a keg, and we all know that there's plenty of them that are more than that. It ends up being a lot of money. So, I mean, that was what I could do immediately to give them some help. And that I think that at least gave people some peace of mind. I've heard then, of a few um, other breweries doing that, including a uh, carton here in New Jersey. But yeah, I, I, I mean, it's, oh, it's, 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 it's important, right? Because I mean, these are, if it is 50% of your, of your business or almost half, I mean, it's the lifeblood and you need to make sure that they're taken care of afterwards. Yeah. yeah. And, and the thing is that it's also for the consumer because whenever this does lift, I mean, at least in Wisconsin, people are dying to go back to taverns and restaurants. Oh, yeah. Do I want them getting some beer that at this point has been sitting there for a month or a month and a half, you know, tapped and not poured? Like, right. Because it's always going to be the brewery's really... fault, not the restaurant's fault. Yeah. Yeah. 
yeah, all the way around. Yeah. And I'm sure they could sell it and people will be like, yeah, you know, it was old beer, whatever. I just don't think, it's not the way I want to do business. So anyways, uh, that was the other big thing that we did. And then um, as things got more heated here, uh, you know, there were, the rate of infection was going up. Then we also had this voting thing, which was a drama. Your, your primary, and, yeah. Yeah, uh, that was like a joke. But I won't, you can say that for your political <laughs> show. And then, but also it was Easter. And for us, you know, families are, we have a lot of young families here and families are very important. And, you know, what do you do when there's kids going back and forth between houses and, you know, you're not in control of your ex or grandparents or the cousin shows up from college that you haven't seen and he just got back from Florida. I mean, I just thought this is the week to be shut down because between voting and Easter, if somebody's going to be sick, this is going to be the week. So we shut 100% down just absolutely everything and sent everybody home and said, look, it's your job to stay as healthy as possible. And we got through the week and surprisingly had nobody sick, which I did not expect because there's like 120 something, you know, depending on the day, 120 to 130 people floating around here. And I thought for sure we'd have at least three or four illnesses, but everybody was really careful and visited grandparents from the porch and stayed away from, you know, neighborhood gatherings and stuff. And they're just at this point everybody's just dying to get back to work, you know, including us. But, like, what do we do? We don't have any tests available around here. There's no masks. I mean, you can get the little disposable mask, but there isn't actually sanitary masks. So we're just going to limp along and hope that some of the promised items will eventually show up. I'm, I'm, is that the first time in your 26 or so years that you've been around that you've actually... 100% 100% shut everything down? Oh, uh, probably. I can. I mean, I'm just thinking about the. Yeah, lo- probably. I can't think of another another time. Uh, maybe, you know, when we started, we might have. When it was like, just you and Dan. No, yeah. I don't. Yeah, I think you're right. I, I don't know. I have to go look, but. Well, I'm just I'm sort of curious more about prepared for the question, but I don't, I can't think of another time. Yeah, I think you're right. But I'm so curious about the logistics of something like that for a brewery your size. I mean, you guys are doing how many barrels last year? You're uh, around 240. So that's not insignificant. Um, no, you know, it's it's more like turning a it's more like running a battleship than it is. Uh, you know, yeah, your standard SUV. Um, yeah. So it it was a drama. So we had a team and I mean one of the real things around here is always yeast management. So they had to like try to figure out how to set aside some and be ready to ramp back up. Plus we didn't know. We were what at the time when we decided to shut down or I did, I was really concerned that like, well, we'll get through this week and then we'll check with everybody and find out that I've got you know, 30 or 40 people not feeling well, in which case it'd be like, uh, yeah, you're not really going to be able to start back up or you could have to do it in some, you know, different format. But um, yeah, we had uh, a whole bunch of planning meetings about how to shut down and how yeast to be managed and what do we do with beer and um, then a whole nother drama of meetings to get going again. It's a, and plus just the expense. I mean, it's a huge 
we've lost all of our draft business, all of our gift shop and beer depot business. And I mean, we're just like a lot of restaurants that are doing takeout. Like we'll just hang in there. One of the things that, and I mean, have you even thought long-term because you, you've started canning a couple years ago. Um, and right. I know one of the last times I spoke with you, um, and Dan, uh, that cans were really starting to, to, to grow as far as, you know, eating into, to, to bottle volume. Is that something that you're thinking about longer term now of when things reopen, if draft could actually get back to 50% or are you already starting to think about packaging as, as sort of the, the, you know, the new growth area for you or supplemental growth, I guess. You know, it's going to be really hard because it's hard, it, at this point, it's impossible to tell. There are little tiny mom and pop places that are very conservative with their money that I feel like they're probably going to be okay, but maybe not. There's places that do a huge volume business um, on draft, but maybe they're highly leveraged or maybe they lost team members um, and you know, it's just impossible to tell what's going to happen. The only reason that it doesn't cause me a great deal of lost sleep is that, I mean, that's kind of the hallmark of starting a business, isn't it? That you have one crazy thing thrown at you after another and you go, what, what, <laughs> what's, what, what's going on over there? Oh, wait a minute. Okay. Here's my solution. You know, so I've, I'm confident in our team. I'm confident in uh, my abilities and super confident in Dan's. And we're set up to keg, bottle, and can. And we're, you know, the state is nowhere near open. And, you know, when it is, well, we have all of our people here. I mean, that was one good thing about paying everybody is uh, we have incredibly low turnover anyway, but you know, like I haven't lost anybody. They're not going anywhere. They're all dying to work. So, you know, when things settle down and the virus is under control, whether that's in two weeks or two years or whatever it is, we're going to be here and ready to roll. And I do, I'm confident that like as a nation, we will come together and um, beat this, you know, the messy process of how that happens um, sometimes makes me anxious and um, things, you know, occur that are obviously very political and um, not always directed toward healthy small businesses or toward taking care of people. But, you know, whatever it is, we'll weather it and we'll be here and we'll be doing great. So, you know, Call me back in two months and then I'll tell you an entirely different answer because <laughs> it's just changing like daily. Well, and one of the things that you sort of touched on political, so much of this has become a political issue. You know, it should be a human issue, but right. like because politics has permeated uh, just about every facet of life in America right now um, and has become so divisive, uh, it's it's been a difficult uh, thing to, to, to separate one from the other. You've been active on social media recently. Uh, you were talking about buying masks. You were uh, challenging some of the uh, the protesters. You call them uh, paid protesters there in the the, the at the Wisconsin State House, um, and and you got this pretty 
at least from where I was sitting here in New Jersey, it seemed like severe backlash uh, from folks. And whether or not that's real because it's on Twitter, I'm I'm not a hundred percent sure. Um, but but I'm I'm sort of curious as to when you wade into some of these issues as a small business owner, there's always going to be a risk, right? And I'm 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 sort of curious as to how you approach, you know, separating Deb the person from Deb the business owner sometimes. Does that make sense? Well, I there is no separation and I think that that is part of you know, the unique charm that is nuclearis because you know, I am what I am. So uh, I care deeply about people. I also expect people to work. I have a lot of common sense. I, you know, people need to work together. And when you're in the middle of a crisis, I don't think is a time that you all, you know, start bullying each other. And the conversation about out-of-state protesters, you know, there's a lot of, um, you know, there is just a ton of, uh, what do you want to call it, evidence that it wasn't. There were people there from Wisconsin for sure. Yeah. I'm not saying they were all paid, but there definitely were people from out of state as well. And, and they're not going to be um, your customers anyway, so. Well, I don't even really care. <laughs> I mean, and people come back with, well, the other side brings in protesters or, you know, like whatever. I'm not, I'm just not for it. I feel like. Wisconsin is a great state. We get along in general. We all get along. We're a big family. When you have a family fight, then you can stand in the kitchen and yell at each other, but you really, there's no reason to be calling in the neighbors. Yeah. I just think it's uh, <laughs> kind of, it's counterproductive, particularly when the goal, the stated goal of all of us, including the protesters, is to work toward getting back open and being healthy. It just, defies common sense. And really, I kind of wonder if why that, um, I mean, I don't tweet at all, like for one, so I'm not the one who tweeted it. Right. Um, it's Facebook. I'm sorry, but off, yeah. Yeah, they took, it's okay. They took it off personal Facebook and changed the font, which I find incredibly amusing. I don't, it just makes me laugh. Like, who went to all the trouble to put this into Comic Sans? I mean, that's... that's <laughs> it's the worst that is, font. That yeah. is, it is, well, it's really funny, too, because, uh, like, what does this say about the person who did it? Like, somebody must really want to paint me in kind of an interesting light. And who's going to buy into this? I don't know. But anyway, somebody somebody's very interested in... Um, kind of doing some gaslighting and making it some kind of constitutional issue, which is even more outrageous. And I'm just really grateful that in the beer industry, we have followed the traditional model that everybody's had for hundreds of years, which is we sell beer in a very small area. And why I do that is so that I can know bar owners and customers and have personal relationships with wholesalers and, you know, Anybody who knows me, if they read that, they would understand the tone. They would understand where I come from, and they'd be like, "Uh huh, like, you know, this is no big deal. This wasn't a big. I'm going to sit down and write a thesis of something political. Like that's not it. I'm buying masks to take care of people, and I think we should all be safe. How is this controversial? Well, and that's that's the way that I first read it um, when I saw it online, and then 
obviously within, I guess, a couple of hours, like it was all over my, my Twitter feed and my Facebook feed of people, you know, s- screaming and yelling. And I, I was sort of taken by, you know, how quickly something like that spread and how, how quickly people like, you know, took your comments and made them, you know, seemingly divisive. We, you know what I think is really great about it, and so I'm kind of happy that it happened, is this is an election year. And there's going to be a ton of this, you know, and I do think I'm, I'm not an uh, expert, but I think this is what gaslighting is about, that you have something small, you kind of try to embellish it, you know, like I say, go home and all of a sudden, oh, she's anti-First Amendment. Like, oh, yeah, really, right. That would be me. Don't say anything by me. <laughs> I mean, that it's like it's laughable, right? But uh, if they can say that and then, you know, portray it that way and get a few people to buy into it and get them wound up. And then I really do believe that there's a lot of professional trolls out there. um, Then, you know, maybe they can make something happen. And I think it's kind of sad and pathetic and I'm not worried about it. And actually I find it kind of amusing and, I'm a little bit flattered they went to so much trouble. I mean, the most offensive thing is the font they chose, but, you know, more power to them. If anybody thinks that I'm running around using Comic Sans, well, okay, I guess they probably don't know me. One of the things, though, that I've been sort of curious about is for for a long time, small business owners were trying not to necessarily wade into political issues. Um, And again, buying masks is not a... Uh, it shouldn't be a political issue. It's a, it's it's a safety issue. But since it's yeah. sort of come out this way, I, I'm sort of curious if you would change what you post going forward, or have we just uh-uh. been thinking about no. it in the wrong terms of like the way that business owners should approach it? Of rather than a kid gloves approach, is you know personal honesty the best policy? And you'll find people who still want to come to your to, to your to your business. You know, at the end of the day, I think we're all here for a bigger reason than beer. And when it gets around to saying something like, I'm trying to take care of my people and my community, and it is suddenly like, oh my God, controversial politics, this is where I stop trying to compromise. I'm not going to turn into a doormat. And frankly, think about it for a second. Of the breweries that are struggling, and let's like not name any names, has the idea of becoming blander and blander and you know less controversial really been interesting or a growth trajectory? I don't think so. I mean, I think part of why people like Big Bold Beers and they uh, buy products is because they do like some personality and some flavor in their beer. And um, I'm not running for office. I'm not walking around making position papers. I, you know, and the other thing is that beer has always been political. Like one of the many trolls that were after me and he's like, <laughs> when does it become political? And I'm like, isn't this like, actually wasn't the constitution written like in the back of a bar or above a bar or something to do with a bar? I mean, pretty sure beer was involved. This isn't like my invention. <laughs> I, you know, when, at what point do we decide that people are important? And it is a fascinating study in 
in economics to have the uh, duality of uh, conversation about trickle-down that's been going on for some time and then actually experience the effects of what happens when the people on the lower end of the economy uh, struggle. Because in my part of the world, we're having food plants closed because there's so much illness. Yeah. You know, at the exact same time, Tyson and Smithfields closed in Wisconsin. The very next day, apparently, there's, a, you know, papal dispensation that all meat places will manufacture meat. Well, how are they well, going to do Well, presidential dispensation. Like, I don't think the, the pontiff has anything to do with it. But yeah. Oh, I was making a joke. I know you were. Right. I know. But just in I, case somebody's listening and they're like. Somebody listens the, and goes, the, oh, my God, the pope is in charge involved. of the meat. Pro- yeah. <laughs> Yeah, right. Oh, I see. This is the thing about me. Like, no, I'm not political. I'm not going to walk around thinking about what I say. But thanks for correcting me. Well, that's why I'm here. Yeah, exactly. Keep me keep me on track. You know, but no one's talking about things like there's also a shortage of CO2 and CO2 is required to run machinery. I mean, so there's a and there's a shortage of workers. And, you know, so on and on, it's not just one thing that you're going to be able to say, hey, you meat plants stay open and they're going to be able to do it any more than anybody can say, hey, we need masks and somebody's going to be able to quick make them. Mm-hmm. And I think that manufacturing is a lot more complicated. Like in my part of the world, milk is a huge industry and it's a real problem because we have an economy that is based on milk production. And I am surrounded, like right now I can look out and see two different farmers uh, and their cows. And, they, you know, there's this whole thing of milk, like the school shut down, the restaurant shut down. They didn't have producers to process the milk into different containers than big bulk containers. And suddenly you have grocery stores where you're being limited on the amount of milk you can buy. And then also farmers dumping milk. And I just think that there is a level of ignorance about how food comes from, you know, the field to the table. Um, and I'm not expecting everybody to figure it out, but there's a lot of things that go on in mass food production that I think people are just, a, you know, a little behind the curve of understanding how it happens, you know. New packaging equipment, like we're looking at right now, we're going to starting at the very front end of a project to put in a new bottle line. So that discussion started last summer, went over the winter while we're doing planning and looking at equipment, getting bids. Just now we're staking out where excavation is going to happen for the building. The equipment needs to be made and then put installed. Then you have to train people to run it. I'm not expecting to be able to use any of it until a year from today. And the project started six months ago and we're pretty fast. Yeah. So how exactly does that happen for milk and masks and meat? Same process. I'm, I'm, I'm super curious cause I, 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 I do want to talk about the supply chain, but I, I'm, I'm curious that you guys are adding a bottling line or, or increasing your bottling line when so much of the trend in beer has gone to cans. Is there, is that just part of the, I don't know, New Glarus secret sauce is bottles? Well, I think the New Glarus secret sauce is uh, always striving to be the best that we can and make the absolute best beer that we can and the best experience for our customers. 
So we've got a bottle line that was um, came used to us from New Belgium. So we all know that they're a busy brewery, and so that equipment's been, you know, run hard. Then it's been here for uh, since 2007, I think, to 2007 or 2008. So it's had another run of some serious workout. Um Bottles continue to grow as a package for us. Okay. Um, air pickup and things like that are difficult to manage in older equipment. And probably most importantly and what really prompted this decision was we're making so much bottled beer that we had gone from kind of a one-shift day operation to almost a 24-hour shift where people were coming in at 4 in the morning as one team and then breaking into another team and people getting done at, you know, 11 o'clock or midnight. And it just is very hard to manage. And maybe more importantly, it's also hard for the people who have to work until midnight. So I don't know, Dan worked rotating shifts. So it's our own subjective opinion that it's, I mean, we know that this is hard on young families. It's hard on relationships. It's hard on people's health. So we wanted to try to get it back to being more of a day-type compartment. And we can do that by having a new bottling line. And it'll, you know, most of the equipment is getting made in Wisconsin, which I'm pretty proud of. And it's going to make us uh, lower air in the bottle. And it's going to make life easier for everybody who works um, in on the production team. And I think it's going to be you know, all of those things together make us a better brewery. So I guess that's our secret sauce, incremental improvement. I don't want to take up too much more of your time, but I'm, but I'm curious because in the 20, it's 26 years, right? That, uh, that the brewery has been around. I don't know. Since 93, somebody has got to do the math for us. I do words, not numbers. Yeah. Yeah, Um, exactly. But more or less, um, the brewery has changed and it's grown and it's adapted and it's, mm-hmm. uh, you know, certainly, uh, you know, given the world some, some, some excellent beers and, uh, some Thanks. cult favorites and, and, and things like that. I'm sort of curious if you've started to think about what the next stage of the future of the brewery looks like, especially in light of COVID-19 or what you would like it to, to emerge well, as and to, not- to maybe even evolve into. I mean, for for my own uh, personal, how I run things, we're just always focused on being, you know, the best that we can be. And so I often get asked things like, well, how big do you want to be? They kind of quit asking that, I mean, but for the longest time, you know, like, what is what is it you want to be? And it, And I always think that it's like such a strange question because... Who walks around saying, "Well, I, you know, I want to be a two hundred thousand barrel brewery." Like, well, I'm not talking size wise. Yeah. Yeah, but I mean, it's the same kind of thought. Like, well, what do you want to be? Like, what I want to be is a continuation of what we are, which is making world class beer, taking care of our people and our community, and we'll see where that goes. I'm not. We're not going to get into alternatives. I'm not <laughs> making soda. We're not bottling water. Um, We are doing some distilling, but that's kind of its own little separate company for a bunch of political reasons that have to do with laws in this state. Um, But we're just going to keep doing what we're doing. I mean, 
I made us an ESOP about five years ago. Right. And so the employees are taking over from the investors. I know that often I read things where it'll say, even in this uh, strange tweet that the owner of, and I think, well, I wish I was the owner of, but <laughs> not. <laughs> the, the investors might be a little surprised to see that. Um, you know, but the employees are taking over and we've got teams that are young and enthusiastic and solid. And I think we'll just continue doing exactly what we are. We're far bigger than I ever expected. And um, I just want to continue to make great beer and um, pay people a living wage. And the things that Dan and I are most proud of are changing other people's lives, that they can buy houses and send their kids to college and bring their babies and grandkids around. And that's what makes life rich. And I'm going to stick with that. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Beer Edge podcast. This show is produced by Beer Edge and co-hosted by myself and John Hall. We're available on Twitter, Instagram, and others at The Beer Edge. And check out our new updated website for more great beer content, beeredge.com. And if you have any questions or feedback, please feel free to reach out to me on Twitter at BeerScribe or via email at andy at beeredge.com. We appreciate any reviews you can give on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your shows. And we'll be back next week with another episode of the Beer Edge Podcast. Until then, stay safe and healthy.